Come here. Yeah, it's your line. Oh, I'm sorry. Where, 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 where are we? How defiantly we pursue love like it was an inheritance due. An inheritance due. Let's see. Um, Holling, that, that wouldn't be real liquor in that flask, would it? Yes, ma'am. It, uh, it says in the booklet that Dr. Lyman is a drinker. Oh, it, well, that doesn't mean that we actually drink. In the theater, we pretend. Uh, we appear to be drinking. It's, it's the art of acting. It's, that's method, Pauling. You, you, you think alcohol, taste alcohol, smell alcohol. Well, I fake it when you can do the real deal. What's realer than that? Well, well, Shelley, if you're, you're drunk, you can't act like you're drunk because you're, you're too drunk to act. Um, but if you are drunk, then you don't have to act like you're drunk. Besides, it uh, <clears throat> helps me calm down my nerves. Okay, uh, let's say we take a break. We had a really good morning. Um, Eric, tell Chris the fight scene after lunch, right. and let's try it off book. Memorized. Um, good job, guys, really. Good work. Great. It's gonna be good. All right, I love that soundbite. I'm sure we're gonna talk in this episode a lot about method acting and what is real and what is pretend and what is pretending, like what that all means. But I did just want to kind of open the floor to everyone here, Charles, Lizzie, Sam, who we Hi. have on the podcast. <laughs> you know, have you guys ever acted in a theatrical production or had anxiety <laughs> about acting in a production? Uh, Lizzie informed us quite recently that we all technically have theater degrees, Lee included. Yes, yeah, film, theater, communication, <laughs> I arts. assume that was the qualifications that brought us to this episode today. <laughs> um, I have been in a bunch of plays, like growing up, going to church and stuff, and I was always too nervous to ever, like, take it seriously. Like, I was always, like, a one or two line person until eventually I just relegated myself to this, like, the AV tech lighting and sound girl. Mm -hmm. It was, like, my role all through high school because I was just too nervous. I just couldn't imagine getting up on stage and, like... I don't know, acting? Are you cool, Ray? <laughs> I've been in my share of terrible high school theater productions. And I was in tech as well, but I was always casted as a side character because I was never comfortable doing romantic scenes, which mm. I thought was oh very God. like Christian of me, but I was just like <laughs> a gay woman. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've, I've seen some pretty bad theater. Watching this was... Uh, was a lot of flashbacks for sure. Like if this came to my small Alaskan town, I you could not stop me from being part of the crew. Like you oh, literally yeah. could not keep me away from the theater. <laughs> I would sign up so hard. Char yeah, Charles, what's you go first? Do you have any background in in the theater? Uh, so when I was in college, I did forensics, which is like a fancy way to say speech and debate. That's mm. just what they call it, forensics. <laughs> and uh, forensic the speech teacher. side what? had a lot of monologues. Or like it had a category you can do like oh, yeah. prose or poetry and stuff like that. And they were very dramatic. And I was very bad at them. <laughs> so oh, bad man. at them. So I always had to go to like the more formal ones, like informative speeches or after dinner speeches, things like that. Because uh, I was just too self-conscious. I, I just mm -hmm. can't really act. But one thing that I thought was really interesting, and it's something I've been putting a lot of thought into, was that uh, for a while I was doing uh, comedy, like stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. And that's like a form oh of acting. And I'm learning so much about you. Sorry, the sexual uh, doesn't know about this. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's crazy. Oh, really? That's even more ballsy, I think, than theater performance. Because yeah. in theater, they're telling you what to say. In comedy, it's all you. Mm -hmm. And it's very intimate. That's so interesting, Charles. Yeah, I had done that. And I had done The Moth, which is like a short storytelling oh, event, yeah. which is like a little mm -hmm. bit like acting. But the thing about stand-up comedy, in my opinion, is that like, I don't think a lot of comedians realize this. But it is a form of control. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of the times when you go up on stage, 
you are portraying somebody that you're trying to sell to the crowd. So even if you play like a very self-deprecating version of yourself mm -hmm. on stage and you're telling embarrassing stories about yourself, that's you willingly sharing that with the audience. So you are sharing a version of yourself that you are comfortable with. Mm. You're controlling the narrative and you're sharing that with the audience. Mm -hmm. So I think that's actually like a very fascinating thing into the neuroticism of a stand-up comedian or somebody that wants to go into it is that, you know, I actually think like deep down there is like this thing about being a stand-up comedian that makes you want to reshape or reinvent yourself to mm. other individuals. Wow. Mm -hmm. This is great. I know we're going to have a lot to talk about in this episode, but I'll I have to quickly say, since everyone's given their theater history, I don't think I was like, we never really, I never had theater. I was always like banned. Mm. But maybe that's why to this day, I have nightmares, Charles, you guys, I have nightmares. <laughs> Of like, no. I'm in a play. I didn't oh. practice any of my lines. Does anyone else have this nightmare? Yeah. I've had this before. I've directed a, a one-act <laughs> play in high school called An Actor's Nightmare. <laughs> no way. You should definitely read it. But it's, it's essentially that where like an actor is having a fever dream before a performance where he's like, mm. everyone's like, okay, you're on in five. Don't forget the tap dance. And he's like, oh, my, I what? don't know my lines. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean... I've had I have a lot of interpretations for that, but I guess we have we have a lot to talk about. So I don't need to get too deep into the psyche of it. But <laughs> I just yeah, I have some weird anxiety about performing on stage. Maybe one day I'll be able to conquer it and I'll stop having those nightmares. But something about hey, that um, is like but yeah. Go ahead. Before we kick into, because I can feel you, you're about to like kick into the intro, into our spiel. <laughs> He's like, uh, 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 what Northern Exposure is about. Uh, I want to I want to <laughs> tell this like really short aside yes, yes, yes. that I had like. I want to say it's like seven years ago at this point. I, I was visiting New Orleans. It was a night after we had uh, gone through drinking and we woke up the next day and we we're walking to go get breakfast or something like that. And I remember we started talking about like real life acting and stuff. And I asked you, Lee, I was saying like, mm. hey, uh, what do you think about like actors? And then like, off the cuff, like immediately you were like, oh, dude, actors are crazy. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> what is that, Charles? Was the last thing you said? Oh, uh, I was saying we just, we just kept on walking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, that was kind of a harsh thing to say, but actors are interesting people, right? I mean, yeah. there definitely takes a certain type of person. And maybe at the time I hadn't really met a lot of really, well, no, that's not true. I must, I know a lot, a lot of people <laughs> I went to school with are great actors, but uh, I don't know. I am also really fascinated by the craft of it. When, when you can tell that an actor is like really into their role and they take it seriously and they try to think about not just the words on the page, but trying to inhabit that thing is pretty interesting as well. But to me, I don't know. It's just the memorization of lines. That's what's like giving me those nightmares. You're like, yeah. that's what the crazy part is. <laughs> I can't memorize all those lines. Maybe it's easier than it than it looks. But but I ask everyone here, though, like in terms of like talking about what Charles mentioned about the idea of like putting yourself out there in this like version of yourself through comedy or else actually acting on stage, like is not podcasting kind of similar? Like yeah, that's true. I definitely feel there's like podcast Lizzie. <laughs> and then there's like the Lizzie that's at home working in total silence with her pug for eight hours a day. Yeah. And not talking to anyone. <laughs> and then there's like, I feel like podcast Lizzie is like chatty and referential mm -hmm. and a little <laughs> stupid, um, but lovable, you know, like, yeah. is there not like a podcast persona? Do y'all relate I, to that? No, no, no. I totally agree with you, Lizzie. I think that there is like, in the way I always looked at it in an analogy way is that there's an off switch and there's an on switch. Yeah. So when you're performing, even if it's like at a party and mm -hmm. you're like the 
star attraction. You're killing it that night. You're telling so many funny stories, yada, 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 that you're on. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the same thing when you like when you do podcasting or you're streaming, you're quote unquote, you're on. And mm-hmm. so you're trying to you're trying to showcase like the best version of yourself, the most interesting version of yourself that you're trying to sell to people. <laughs> when in reality, we're probably ordinary people that like to play with their pug for like eight hours straight. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. called being an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> that's sorry. Yeah, I do want to get into the podcast, but it's interesting to bring up the podcast persona mm-hmm. because I've always considered our podcast, Charles, as like. I'm not an actor. I'm not a comedian. You know, I, 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 I'm not charismatic like other podcasters, but like, I want to do the diligence to the show. And like, in a way I have this great show that is easy for me. Cause I, I love the show. It's easy for me to sort of like yap on and on. So I don't know that is, but there is some sort of, you know, I don't, I don't just like go up to everyone I know and start talking about Northern exposure. There's like some switch <laughs> that I also have to like sort of turn on. And I guess I'm thinking about the listeners of this podcast are kind of primed for this version of me because they're ready to hear about Northern Exposure. But um, yeah, it definitely is a, a a persona. But Charles, let's get into it. What are we even doing here? What is this? Okay, so what's happening here is that we are the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we are overanalyzing everything dealing with Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joining here with my co-host, Lee. That's right. I'm Lee, and I'm a huge fan of Northern Exposure, one of my favorite shows of all time. I've seen the show a countless number of times, except for season six. This is my second time. Like, I'm this is my first time. Like, I'm rewatching. So I guess second time watching this season. And Charles, every episode of Northern Exposure is a first time for you. So you're fresh, taking this in with fresh eyes. But of course, we're in the final season now, so you're uh, a bit of a Northern Exposure scholar. (laughs) And uh, today, we also have Subtextual, who have been on the podcast before. We got Lizzie and Sam. Um, But yeah, it's been uh, quite a a minute since you've been on, so we'll have to kind of dive back into the Northern Exposure stuff here. But uh, can you all talk about, about your podcast, Subtextual? Yeah, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we are the hosts of Subtextual Pod, where we prove to you that every movie is as gay as you think it is. Yeah, exactly. So what we do is we take mainstream films that might have some queer subtext and we crack it open and discuss our feelings about the film and um, production tidbits. Mm -hmm. And... um, Lee said, like, tell us about y'all's podcast, but he is very much uh, responsible for Subtextual as well as our audio producer in general overall. Um, know it, knew everything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we could not uh, do what we do without Lee. And so we're always just so glad to be included over here at Northern Overexposure and get a chance to talk to Lee and his element as well as Charles. So we're just really Glad to be here. Yeah, so glad to be here. I love talking with you guys. We're very excited to have you. And yeah, listener, if you haven't heard of Subtextual Podcast and you've been following this podcast, they're right. Like I'm a producer of that podcast, so I have to recommend you got to check out their podcast. It's great. Uh, every Monday, like a sort of a weekly yep. podcast. So find us on the Apples, the Spotify's, the all the all the places. Yeah, we're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we're right yeah. behind you. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree. Uh, Subtextual podcast is fantastic. If you even just like us remotely, me and Lee in our podcast, <laughs> <laughs> the podcast. You're going to love the subtextual podcast, people. I mean, they talk about really like a wide range of films. Like right off the top of my head, uh, I know that they talked about Angels in America, Lady Bird, Superbad, Talented Mr. Ripley. And they're trying to thread the needle on trying to find 
number one, what's so interesting about the film, but exactly what their logline is saying. They're trying to find any subtextual meaning involved with it on a lens that maybe you just don't view through so often. So if you are at all interested in seeing things like that, please, please, please check them out. Oh my God, can we use that blurb on our website, Charles? <laughs> I'm going to like quote you. Charles, famous podcaster. <laughs> exactly. Is the, uh, <laughs> is the credit. Yeah, Charles, actually, we were on an episode, um, Happy Such Together, episode. of their podcast. Wonderful movie if you haven't seen it. And yeah, I mean, if you don't know where to start and you want to listen to Subtextual, if you like us, go listen to that episode. But really, anything that they're doing is great. Uh, as a as an aside, yeah. I do say the word subtextual a lot ever <laughs> yes, since your, your podcast has been created. Yeah, ever since like y'all created the podcast, I actually say that like maybe like once a week. I'll be like, oh, the subtextual <laughs> meaning of that is wow. blank. <laughs> we are in Charles' lexicon. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Nice. Okay, Charles. Um, you ready to dive into this episode? Anything to say before I uh, run down the credits here? No, let's hear who directed it, who wrote it. Okay, yeah. So it's called Bus Stop. It's uh, the 20th episode in season six. And the title is has an interesting spelling, Bus, B-U-S-S, Stop. Does anyone here know what, like why it might be called Bus with two S's? Bussy. I was, I was thinking the bussy. <laughs> My first thought was the bussy. I was like, so bus, it, bus it wide open. Bus it. Uh, Charles, did you know? I, I didn't know. I had to look into this. Uh, the, the play itself, like the existence of it, or why it has an extra S? Well, so the play itself is just bus stop, like a normal bus stop, like B-U-S. Right, right, right. But the episode title here has two S's in the word bus. I think that... It, one, the more practical reason is that they didn't want to get sued. So maybe it's like, <laughs> like franchise, like trademark or something like that. So they're like, all right, we can't have bus stop. Like <laughs> William Inge's uh, estate, they're very good. <laughs> very good. And at what they do. the second meaning is that in the episode, there is a theme of trying to reinvent yourself or trying mm. to reinvent yourself out of the playbook. And I think that adding an extra S to there is kind of like your own cheeky way of saying like, I'm not just this play. I am more than that. Mm. That's kind of like an okay rating. I like that. Um, but I think there is there is an actual answer here. If you look Ooh. in the dictionary, B-U-S-S, it is a word. Oh, it, really? It's like an informal, I don't know if you call it slang, but informal is what this dictionary says. Uh, it means a kiss. Huh. A bus is a kiss. <gasps> What? Bus? <laughs> In which, like, dialect? So it says, late 16th century alteration of late Middle English, bas, noun and verb, probably from French, bazaire, oh. or from Latin, bazier, which is to kiss, I think, in French. So does Could the you word use this boss? in a sentence? <laughs> uh, a, a bus, like I give him a bus on the cheek or whatever. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, like who would say I never heard of that. Whoa, we need to bring that back. Do it we? sounds Maybe. gay. It really, <laughs> really does sound a little gay. <laughs> so like, really? Do we need to bring that back? <laughs> I think we're good with leaving that in the past. Uh, but okay, so the director was Daniel Atias, and he is known for directing the episodes Revelations, Three Doctors, First Snow, and Mikasa Sukasa. And the writer... Uh, writers were Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, of course, have done a lot of episodes here. We'll continue to go on. Yeah, it's, they go on to do Sopranos, right? Or they work on Sopranos? Pretty sure. Mm -hmm. And then the air date, uh, despite what Wikipedia says, Charles, if you remember at the end of our last episode, with Jay's help, uh, we figured out that this episode aired on April 26th of 1995. Because remember, we're now on the Wednesday night time slot with Northern Exposure. 
Great um, slot. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite slot, Wednesday nights. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. On NBC. I don't know what this aired yeah. on. CBS. But yeah. Uh, that's, that's, CBS, yeah. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people saw it as a downgrade. But also the series was – people blamed that, you know, viewer retention was bad because, oh, they switched from Monday to Wednesday. But also this series is kind of – Changing. I don't go. I guess have you guys noticed that Joel is not in this episode? Yeah, yeah. he's gone from the series now. Oh, when did he leave? A few episodes ago, like uh, five episodes ago. Yeah, so it's like it's really coming to an end. Wow. Did they write out like was that a planned write out of the character for an artistic choice, or was it because the actor like had to leave? You the know? second one, yeah, uh, they, they the, did yeah, try to the latter. Yeah, <laughs> they did try to work it into the story some, but it was kind of a forced. Uh, you know, it had been going on for a while, and then Rob Morrow, the actor, left the sh- you know, was wanting to leave the show. So, oh, wow, they wrote him out. Wow. Well, we won't belabor that too much, but I'll ask for the details after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can smell a story, <laughs> but yeah, Charles. So, um, I think a lot of this episode is uh, pretty much all centering around the production of this play in Sicily. They're putting on Bus Stop, so I think we can kind of go in a chronological order here. Um, I've got the first scene here. It opens with Eric uh, tending to some bonsai. Um, and, oh, wait, is it Eric or Ron? He's, sorry. <laughs> Who was <laughs> we tending talking, the bonsai? We were talking about this Eric, before we started recording. Okay, Eric is the actor and Ron is the grease man. He is got the greaser. <laughs> I want to like write this down. <laughs> yeah, we're, Ron looks like a Ron. That's true. Yeah, and Eric is an Eric. But is Eric the one who's tending the bonsai? Is that right? Uh, let's see. I can't even remember. Almost. One of them is cutting a bonsai tree. It's Eric. It's Eric. Okay. Michelle comes in and it's funny because they're like, come in, come on in. It's Alaska out there. Like it's so, uh, <laughs> so just like deadly, I guess, out there. Um, she's putting together this benefit. Uh, yeah, it's kind of confusing. It's a benefit, but it's also like a local theater production, but it's a benefit for Sicily trout hatcheries. Doesn't Oh, that was a line I missed because they kept yeah. talking about trout, trout. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> And because I missed that first line, I was like, I guess it's like an inside joke from their history. (laughs) I think that's what's happening. It doesn't really matter because the main focus here is that they're putting on this theatrical production. The whole Sicily trout hatcheries doesn't really play in to any plot, I don't think. Right, Charles? No, there's just a couple lines that reference Mm -hmm. it. But otherwise, you could be substituted for like Hmm. literally anything. Bread factory, whatever you want it to be. Yeah, pretty low stakes cause, I might say. I mean, in 95, like, they didn't even believe climate change was real. (laughs) They had no clue. (laughs) Also, this Michelle character is new to me. Is she new to this season? She's new to the season. So after Joel leaves, they bring in a new doctor, Phil Capra, who's like, we sort of see in this episode. Yeah. And Charles, in the last episode that we watched, they were going through a rough patch and they're like fully separated right now. Yeah. She's that, staying in someone else's house, it seems. Yeah, that plays through to this episode. I just wanted to get your thought, Charles, on on their uh I think Phil only has like one scene in this episode, but what did you think about that? Uh very uh, we talked about this so yeah. much last episode, but it's <laughs> it doesn't feel very northern exposure to me. Mm. Like this is just it's <laughs> it's almost too real. Like we know that we, you know northern exposure is very like it's whimsical it's not super grounded it's philosophical a lot of things are very heady very up in the air in heads in the cloud it's things like this and then suddenly we're gaining marital disputes yeah that yeah. are can very real lead to divorce which is <laughs> multiple fun. marital disputes yeah mm-hmm. right charles was like if this 
season ends with their divorce. He's like, I'm disavowing this entire oh, yeah. show. Oh, no. I don't no know pressure. if that's what's going to happen. I can't actually remember. But Well, I will say at the end of the episode, you kind of get the sense of their reconnection. Yeah, it is pretty cute. Um, I guess we can get, we'll get, we'll talk yeah. all about it, but like they do end up sitting next to each other at the premiere and they're kind of like falling asleep on each other for yeah. various reasons. But so... Uh, Michelle is trying to raise money so that they can do this play, which I guess is going to raise money for the trout hatcheries. I don't really fully understand this pipeline, but the play <laughs> Trust is, us. It's for the trout. <laughs> <laughs> the play is a real play by William oh. Inge. I guess William Inge called Bus Stop. Inge. Inge. Seems so boring. Um, it feels so like they could have made it up. Yeah. yeah. I, I had never heard of it before. Charles, do you know about this play beforehand? No, I I vaguely knew the play right, though. Yeah. Uh, so this is a straight copy based from Wikipedia right here. Uh, William Motter Inge was an American playwright and novelist whose works typically feature solitary protagonists encumbered with strained sexual relations. Huh. In the early mm. 1950s, he had a string of memorable Broadway productions, including Picnic, which earned him a Pulitzer Prize. Wow. With his portrait of small town life and settings rooted in the American heartland, Inge became known as the playwright of the Midwest. Hmm. Honestly, seems right up my alley. Got a, yeah. I've never read any. Yeah, I know. But, Doesn't that sound really interesting? <laughs> but uh, we get a quick little bit of exposition from, I think it's Eric here. He says, oh, I love bus stop. Real people, small town, bus stranded in a blizzard. That's all we really need to know for the, uh, the, the stage dressing here. But what else happens in this scene, Charles? Uh, basically, this is where the the rising action starts, like immediately right here, because Ron, in a very sly, subtle way, bribes Michelle so that Eric can get the role of the sheriff. Yeah, that's it's right. The sheriff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the sheriff. I don't feel like he needs to bribe her. This is a town of 20 people, and this is a gay man with theater experience. I feel like he'll get yeah. a part. Give him a lead role. Like, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah I never got that. Like, was yeah. he not going to get that part? Like, she never establishes, like, oh, but I already had someone else in mind, or, like, that's mm -hmm. not what I wanted for that character. Like, she just feels apprehensive about putting him in that role. And I'm like, why? He seems to be a good actor. Yeah. He knows his lines. He wants to do it. Like, that is more than enough qualification for him to have the role. Exactly. Like he's got the dedication. It doesn't matter if he's like, a ter like, I mean, he's not terrible, obviously, but there is like, there's like a scene where Ruthann is kind of judgmental of Eric's acting, but I couldn't tell that he was like that bad in the, oh, in yeah. the scenes. And, and that does, um, come up later where when Michelle is sort of backed into a corner, Eric is like, did you cast me because of the money? And she, it's kind of, she's kind of like, maybe I did, but honestly, like, I was kind of happy that you were good. So like, you know, maybe she would have cast him for the money if he was bad, but it turned out that he wasn't that bad. So it was fine. Right. It feels like a really good opportunity for conflict that they, that they just go a different direction with that. I didn't yeah. expect, I guess. Like I thought like, Oh no, like Eric's gonna take over the play or be really bad or whatever, but it ends up being a more like one of these more grounded personal yeah. conflicts with his husband that I was like, oh, this is like kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's that you point that out. It's like it could have been an easy, like you could have seen that plot play out in your head and they go for something a little different with that more sort of like they, they fix the conflict on the relationship between Ron and Eric rather than just like Eric being terrible and right. Michelle being like, oh, I, but I need the money. Like I have to sign this deal with the devil to, right. it's like, it's never that. Mm -hmm. How are they so rich? 
They, uh, Ron and Eric? Yeah. They own a B&B in uh, Sicily. I guess that's it. Charles, would you say, uh, yeah, they have like a, I don't know if you would say profitable business, but they have a kind of a fancy schmancy business there. I want to say that even before that, they were rich, were they not? Because that's what allowed yeah. them to procure. Right. Mm. What is Coming it called? To Sicily Sourdough Cafe? Yeah, that's what it is. Sourdough Cafe, bed and breakfast or something. Sourdough Inn, bed and breakfast. Yes. That's what it is. Um, Just curious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. I wanted to, like, really briefly, I wanted to get into this because it's been something that I've been really fascinated by. And I don't know how much truth there is, but I remember talking to you about this, Lee, is that when a scene starts, like the very first scene, the establishing shot, very often it's on a window or a light source Mm -hmm. because apparently it's to subconsciously tell the audience that this is where the light is coming from. Mm. So it makes it more natural. And then the camera pans to whatever it needs to pan to the subjects. And that's exactly what's happening in this scene. Like we start with the bonsai tree, but it's against a window. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, like, is that a real thing? I never thought Mm. about that before. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but I see what you're saying. It's kind of like they establish the light, the source of light in the scene. And we had a conversation off pot about this, Charles, where, you know, in movies, uh, the cinematographer, the director of photography, they're like sculpting the image, like not only what goes in the frame, but how the light interacts with that. And uh, they're adding a lot of, you know, movie lights. It's like not really in someone's house. They're kind of like pointing lights in certain directions and shaping how the light hits here and maybe cutting the light from hitting another spot. Um, But a lot of times... Uh, they might use elements in the scene like a lamp or the window to suggest that, oh, if the window's on like the left side of the frame, then like it makes sense that a lot of light's coming from that right. direction. So is that that's kind of what you're getting at, Charles, is like we yeah. see that direction of the light? Right. That's something I never considered about. Like it would subconsciously go into our mind to say like, oh, the scene feels natural because we already know mm-hmm. in the depths of our mind that the window is right there because mm-hmm. we led with it in the beginning. And I never thought about that. And I'm, I'm sorry, I just know that all of y'all work in film, so <laughs> I just know that y'all could provide an answer. <laughs> yeah, I think showing the source of the light is, like Leah's saying, a good way to just show how the cinematographer is really considering the reality of the world and not just, like, you know, blowing multicolored lights everywhere. And we're wondering, like, <laughs> why is Ryan Gosling lit so blue all the time in Drive? Like, why are all these neon lights in the world? And then you see the elevator buttons are purple. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. so that's why he's purple. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a good uh, observation. And you're right, probably, like, does more subconsciously than anything. I think it places them geographically with, really well with Alaska being so cold. The light that they do have is really cold. It's not like a warm, sunny mm-hmm. California light. So I think... It also makes their homes feel cozier because you see the blue mm. light coming in and then you see the lamps that they have turned on and their rugs and their throw blankets that it makes you kind of feel like, ooh, they're inside and they're not cold anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's part of the scene when Eric is like, come in, come in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Alaska out there. It's Alaska out uh, there. But so we get um, Chris's little little uh, radio broadcast here, a terrible version Disco version of this song, There's No Business Like Show Business. <laughs> Did not enjoy that. It's like a remix or something. But I can't remember exactly what. He's just given us some exposition. I think we learned that Marilyn is the stage manager and also costume designer, though I think we see her mostly as stage manager in this uh, episode. And then, like, everyone's gathering in the brick, the local bar, and it's like the casting, the announcement casting list is uh, posted up, and everyone's trying to see, oh, what did I, did I get this part? Did I get that? 
The first thing we hear is that Holling got the part of the doctor. And he says, oh, I just tried out so that, it, you know, to make Shelly happy. He's like, I don't, I'm not really a big actor, but it's a, you know, it's a point of celebration for everybody. Holling's going to be the doctor. Maggie is going to be Sherry, uh, which I think Shelly says, uh, the dance hall fox. <laughs> and Shelly is a little upset that she's cast as Elma. She says it's an eggheaded waitress. <laughs> Um, but she she accepts it because she's like, oh, at least Elma's on stage a lot more than anybody else. So, like, it's, I get to be on stage a lot. Um, Eric, of course, gets cast as the sheriff, thanks to Ron. He runs up and, and celebrates with Ron, but he doesn't know that Ron sort of, like, greased the wheels there. Uh, Chris is cast as the lead. Bo, there we go. Yeah, super excited about it. And, of course, it lines up with Maggie being cherry. Which is also, I'm assuming that's the lead, uh, the female lead, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was making sure. Yeah, so obviously they're setting it up. And I just wanted to ask Sam and Lizzie, the last time y'all watched Northern Exposure, I'm pretty sure it relied on somewhat between Joel and Maggie. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, the, you know, definitely. there's a potential romance between these two. How surprised were you all this episode seeing that totally flip? Yeah, I think the last episode I was on, uh, Maggie was joining the volunteer firefighting department. Okay. Um, and that's yeah, when mm -hmm. like this initial sparks were flying between the two of them. They had like, it didn't seem like they'd started a relationship yet. And so I was expecting to see them like fully a few years into their relationship <laughs> this episode. I'm like, wait, where is the doctor? Like, why is this guy having feelings for her? It, um, it was definitely confusing for me. Yeah, I was a little surprised to see like such like blatant romantic chemistry or tension, I guess, between John Corbett's character and Maggie. It was again another one of those instances of like conventionality mm -hmm. for the show that is a little uh not something I expected. Like this episode was just so dramatic um in like a really classic like sitcom-y way. Um however, I do think Maggie like is so charismatic and I was totally believing that she might have like these feelings for him and like there might be something mm -hmm. going on behind um, backstage. But yeah, I was a little surprised by that. Yeah. We talked about it on our last episode because that one actually had a lot of sort of like a budding Maggie Chris romance as well. Oh, really? Mm. Um, and we were a little critical of it, but mostly just I think, Charles, you were kind of upset. It's like, why does Maggie need to be paired mm -hmm. with someone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also something that I was saying, Charles, was like, maybe I think the show is just trying to reach some sort of like hard-hitting emotional season ending, like series ending at the end of this series. And, and I don't know, they're looking for some replacement for the uh, will-they-won't-they they, Maggie and Joel relationship. Mm -hmm. They need some sort of like, or they think that they need um, some sort of romantic subplot. So they're trying to ship uh, Chris and Maggie right now. Yeah, I, I think that it would have worked if we had like an entire season to set it up. But you have to remember that like Joel just left a couple episodes before. Mm. Like, and we only had like eight episodes left of the season. So they're really trying to speed run this. They, they, <laughs> yeah. they set up a little bit of clues in the beginning of the season, but eh, not very much. So that's kind of why I, I've been super critical of it so far. I mean, they do show him in crisis about okay. it. And it mm -hmm. may not be directly because like, oh, it's Maggie. How can I, you know, feel affection for her? And I'm sure we'll talk this point out in a little bit. But they at least show that he's not like automatically just kind of going for it with mm -hmm. her. Yeah, but to force 
like some sort of romance budding to like completion in an eight episode <laughs> arc when like the rest of the series was like the will they won't they thing. It kind of serves as like a regression for the character of Maggie. Yeah, definitely. That she can just like, and it feels cheap. Yeah, she does. She has no. It's like, why would she? We we kind of got into this on the other episode, Charles. But you pointed out that she's like, I think Jay as well, who was our guest. It's like she's sort of also been described as like an independent woman too, and especially even like even when I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to. I'm trying to like dig out other examples, but um, but it just kind of seems a little weird that they would take it in this direction when. There's a lot to explore with Maggie as sort of like figuring out her life right now. She's mayor of Sicily right now. That's Wait, like a what? new thing. She's, She's the a mayor. mayor. And she I didn't time she owns a movie theater. <laughs> what? Yeah, oh she's been doing a lot of cool oh stuff. God. And then also she, now Chris. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, she has been killing it. She's a landlord. She is <laughs> oh like the God. mayor. She has like all of the authority in the land. And <laughs> wow. the thing that annoys uh, me and Jay were both annoyed about this is that last episode, when we were talking about the budding relationship between Chris and Maggie, it was very one-sided in that we only saw through Chris's perspective and uh, his inner monologue and the things that he was thinking about, which left Maggie with no agency on how she thought about the relationship, mm -hmm. which, I mean, arguably she must have thought about it positively because she likes him at the end of that episode. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of the same thing on this one where, again, yeah. we're looking at it through Chris's perspective yeah. again, and Maggie is just playing along and... Yeah, it, it leaves a very sour taste in my mouth. But also, I, I do, I'm sorry to the listeners, I do want to stress this, we're trying not to be like hypercritical at the oh, yeah. end of Northern Exposure. So I get it, I get it. I mean, well, I'll just echo kind of what Lizzie was saying earlier is like we do, the actors are great. We believe their like their charisma and their chemistry. So there's like, there is a, like you feel that sort of like cinematic, romantic heart to it, but... When you think about it and compare it to yeah. the rest of the series, it's kind of might be off-putting for fans that like uh, long-term like fans of the show who have seen all the other episodes before. It reminds me of an. I guess this might be a spoiler for the later seasons of Friends. So yeah, like, skip forward if you thing. haven't seen Friends. Um, <laughs> but whenever they, for a very brief stint, I think in like season eight or something, try to put Rachel with Joey, and you're like, where did this come from? They've known each other forever. She has a baby and was married several times to his best friend. Like, but the thing is, like, both the actors are so charismatic mm -hmm. and they have they're such professionals, and the chemistry was there. So part of me was like, okay, like I guess if this is the direction we're going, sure. But <laughs> wait, because I was with you until you said Joey and Rachel. They make sense to me. I bought that. The Chandler and Monica thing irks me to no end. <laughs> oh my god, that's a much bigger fish to fry. Yeah, just you <laughs> bigger trout to fry. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine being a friend group where everyone marries each other? That's so weird. I'm trying to think if like uh, I married someone in the friend group. <laughs> oh Sounds shit, like that's so weird. <laughs> that's so weird. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like okay, I guess we're doing this now. Yeah. Well, okay, let's keep moving through the plot. Uh, the next scene is they're all rehearsing, and we get, uh, we see like Holling is drinking from a flask. It's that opening soundbite that we played at the beginning of this podcast. And uh, yeah, we kind of first introduced this idea. Eric calls it method acting. But I think what happens a lot in this episode with many things, but maybe particularly with Chris and Maggie, is like, you know, what's the separation between? 
your real self and your pretend self mm. acting and method. Uh, I think it's really funny in that opening soundbite where they're kind of arguing the case for like, well, wouldn't it just be easier if I was drunk? Like, then I don't have to act. Then it's real. And like people could see, you know, could actually experience real truth, you know, but mm-hmm. it's also, you know, there's arguments on other sides. Michelle says like, well, you can't really control yourself if you're drunk, I guess. I don't know. You guys have thoughts on method actors? The method? I was just thinking I would love to see Austin Butler in Bus Stop. (laughs) Um, But not about method acting, but I'm just thinking about how Ron paid off the director to cast Eric. And I'm like, homeboy back there is getting face drunk. I think Eric... Right? Eric is the actor. I think Mm -hmm. Eric would have been cast, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's not an alcoholic. He will show up. He knows all of his lines. I literally don't understand what the problem is. Ron and Michelle. There was So I don't think there's any deleted scenes on the DVD for this episode. If I'm wrong, I'll punch it in here. But there is like a little tinge of like, uh, we get it a little bit at first. And then later in the episode, it's kind of revealed that Ed wanted to play the sheriff. Uh, but also like... Wait, which one is Ed? Oh, ho- wait, which uh, one's Ed? He's not really in this episode too much. Oh, he was like the one that was going to... Direct? No, Ruth mm. Ann mentions it, right? Like, I think Ruth that Ann. role should have gone yeah. to Ed. Oh, with the long hair? Long hair. Yeah. Long hair, mm-hmm. long hair. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed. Yeah. But Ed, I mean, he's stoned. He's not remembering <laughs> several pages worth of lines. I'm so sorry. I love Ed. Ed's my favorite. He's got the Macaulay Culkin, like, he needs vitamin D. Look. <laughs> yeah. That's so cute. You know who my favorite character is? I don't even know if he has a name. <laughs> he has the big beard. and Hayden he Keys. Yes. He's sorry. like, well, it forces what? the perspective. <laughs> and he, he puts the trap door and he, like, memorizes all the lines. I just think he's such an icon. And I was like, why didn't he have a role? Charles has some thoughts about Hayden, Hayden yeah. I heard the incredulity. Uh, it's just Hayden is like <laughs> he is the heel of Northern Exposure, so he got kind of a villain. Around. Oh, is yeah, he? Kind oh, of really? A, like, yeah, in what sense? Yes and no. Yes and no. But go ahead, Charles. Well, he's committed like felonies, in my opinion. He's committed oh. medical, I mean, not even in not your, medical malpractice. Not even in he your lied opinion. About in, in fact, yeah, <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's lied about a like a lot of things, and he's caused a lot of problems it's in the town, lovable. and he's. Yeah, and he's always like the first person to lose his temper. Like, he's just like he's a, bunch a villain, of stuff about but he's him. lovable too. You he know? just needs a creative outlet, yeah. you guys. Obviously, <laughs> it's just his like you know his problems get bottled up, and he has no way to express them. Mm-hmm. Here he is, not being believed by <laughs> Michelle for his honestly genius ideas with the stage design. I don't say what the problem is. The door is the only thing I had. I took issue with. <laughs> I think it's just so funny though. I, I wanted to say really quickly for method acting, there was a. Oh, yeah. There, there's two of them that are, are really famous ones for method acting uh, quotes involving them. And the first one is that on the 1976 film Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman and oh. Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce his name? Olivier. Olivier. Uh, Hoffman is, you know, known as one of the leading people for method acting. And he was really getting into it. And he hadn't like slept in three days or something like that. Uh, and he was trying to tell Lawrence of how difficult it was to be in such a mindset for method acting. And then Lawrence replied, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? Yes. I live. And he ate him up with that. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. There is also another uh, quote from Robert Pattinson, who (laughs) was saying that, (laughs) I always say this about people who do method acting. You only ever see people do the method when they're playing an ass. 
That's you never true. see someone being lovely to everyone while they're really deep in character. Yeah. Wow. I, the tweet that was like, Austin Butler hadn't seen his family in three years while filming Elvis. <laughs> and someone like retweeted it and was like, Jesus Christ, just do something else then. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I, what if that's actually like an excuse now? It's like, I didn't yeah. want to pay like child support payment because that's, the, I think my character would do that. He just wouldn't. Exactly. He wouldn't exactly. do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see like Tom Hanks who played like Mr. Rogers, like pretending to be Mr. Rogers making everyone around him happy for two years. Like, it's only the assholes. With the exception, I will say, I'm pretty sure Ryan Gosling went so deep into the Ken character for Barbie that he has yet to resurface because every interview or public showing, like, public outing since then, he just, like, kind of is still Ken. And I'm kind of worried about him, but I think he'll resurface eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, um, yeah, the rehearsal's a bit chaotic. A lot of a lot of people in Sicily are involved in this production, and it's all coming like it's all happening here at once. Michelle is nervous. I actually didn't. I don't think I caught this the first time watching it, but I was scrubbing through the episode earlier, and we can see that she's like kind of kind of massaging her neck. You know, she has mm -hmm. like she gets a crick in her neck in this episode, so it kind of starts here. Um, Marilyn. Is kind of watching from the sidelines. She's like standing next to Hayden and she says to him, it's happening again. Yes. Hayden says, uh, maybe this time it'll be different. So we see that there's like some weird like haunted, I don't know, if energy that's happening, resurfacing. Might I just say, Marilyn was born to be a stage manager. Yes. Of yeah. all the stage managers I've ever worked with, they're all stern, controlling, mm -hmm. quiet, and all knowing. Yes. And she plays that <laughs> so well. Yeah. And also pulling out like a Charles level like um, metaphor or, an, or analogy here. I think like with Michelle massaging her neck and eventually like getting this crick in her neck that prevents her from literally seeing a different side. Mm. I feel like she's so like rigid in her ideas for this performance. And I'm just curious like why she cares so much, like how she's like taking it all so personally and like refuses to see like with the Hayden character, right? That's the guy that I like. Mm -hmm. But the Hayden character mm -hmm. like refuses to like accept any sort of like artistic change to this like pretty mm -hmm. boring sounding play. Um, and I guess that could be a, a read on the, the yeah. neck crick. Oh my God, that's so good. I love that, Lizzie. That's really good. Like you're saying, like, why why is she so invested in this play? I mean, she's, like, you can say, like, I mean, she's the director. It's like her ship that she's trying to um, captain here. But um, also there's like a bit towards the end where Maurice reveals that it's like the theater is like a virus. I'm sure we'll talk mm -hmm. about that quote later. So good. Preach. And he, and he, says, <laughs> he says, like, you know, it he changes also, you. <laughs> Yeah, and he says, like, you know, also all the people here that are in Sicily, they came here to reinvent themselves, and it's hard to, mm. like, direct them to do, like, make them do something, you know, try to boss them around, you know. And I think maybe this is also potentially a way of seeing kind of, like, very uh, in a hidden way, but it's like Michelle kind of becoming a new person and becoming a Sicilian in this way of, like, she has her own, like, idea of what, she wants this play to be and what the image should be, like what she should be as the director. Maybe that's part of that. Uh, like, why is she so invested in this? Mm. I would also say, I'm sorry, I'm going to be skipping forward a little bit on the yeah. plot as I try to get my reasoning on this. I think that it's very interesting that it is the director and the actor, uh, Eric and Michelle respectively, that are trying to reclaim like this, uh, mm. not like a lost glory, but something that like they thought they could do in the past. And for some reason, they gave it up. 
So yeah. Eric thought that he was going to be this famous actor. And then suddenly he just lost a little bit of confidence and he fell off the wayside. And the same thing for Michelle, where she's saying like, you know, I, I always wanted to kind of do this. And now they're given the opportunity to try to get this back. And so they're trying everything they can because they know that if they fail this time, Mm. They have no more excuses to fall back on. They truly were not meant for this role, which is, I, I thought, deeply sad about yeah. when, when you think about it. Because if you are a person that identifies as like an actor, a poet, a comedian, whatever, however way you enter the world, and you want to come in as that person, and you feel that, but then you're told that you're actually bad at that. Hmm. How are you supposed to reconcile with that within yourself? You kind of try your best not you try to be the best at your craft so that you don't have to face that ugly truth and i think that's kind of like something that is going on between the two the director and the actor yeah to to kind of marry both of your thoughts charles and lee like that is very much the perspective charles of of the individuals and they can't see beyond their like neuroses about trying mm. to accomplish these own personal goals to realize that they're in Sicily, Alaska. Like no matter how much you try to force it, it may be like unattainable. Mm -hmm. Boom. Yeah. I'm loving this, uh, this like synthesis of all our ideas here. Uh, okay. Well, we kind of talked a lot about of what's going on in this scene. A couple things we may not have touched on is we also get this beginning thread of, uh, our continuing thread of Shelly kind of being jealous of Maggie. We see a little bit of that in this scene. She doesn't understand or she doesn't like that Maggie is um, is in this role of Cherie instead of her. <laughs> we also get the they're, they're going to try to rehearse now the scene with uh, where Chris has to kiss Maggie. It's like Bo kisses Cherie. And uh, something is happening in Chris's head. Like he's like, oh, crap, it's not working. Let's try it one more time. And it's like he freezes up. He can't go through with the kiss. And I think he even like excuses himself, just like storms out of the theater. And, um, you know, Michelle is like, doesn't really understand what's going on. We get a shot of Marilyn kind of watching this all play mm -hmm. out very suspiciously, but she doesn't say anything. And yeah, that's kind of the beginning of that sort of uh, con uh, conflict, I guess, between Chris and Maggie. This is why we have callbacks, my friend. <laughs> this is why they audition for chemistry. Because some people are not ready for that. I'm sorry. Bo is kind of a bad actor. I love seeing actors pretend to play actors. <laughs> He's the uh, Joey Tribbiani of this show. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and the accent, it's just so bad. I love it. But oh. I love him to death. What did y'all think of Maggie's accent? Southern accent. She's actually is from Texas. That oh, really? Actor. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even notice. It was no. probably so good. I didn't yeah. even notice. I, I thought she good. was great. Like as an actor playing an actor, I was like, I can see her acting as an actor acting. You know what I mean? Like she <laughs> yeah. was really, really good. Yeah. Oh, I also wanted to add that this is also where the seeds between Rod and Eric are getting kind of planted mm -hmm. because yeah, uh, Rod's expecting like a big, you know, honestly, I don't even know what he's expecting because Eric is being told that he needs to go to like wardrobe or something like that. And he comes off the stage and he talks to Ron 
and he congratulates him and he's saying like, oh, you know, it's come all, it's all coming together. Look how great that was. And Ron's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Eric's like, oh, I'm sorry. I have to go talk to Wardrobe. They need me. And Ron actually gets offended. Yeah. He checks his watch as if to measure the time he was speaking with him. Like, I only got 10 seconds with him. And he's mad at that. And I'm like, why are you? He has a legitimate purpose. He's got to go see Wardrobe. Come on. Wait, I, I wrote this in my notes to tell them apart. Lee, would you read this? All right, let's see. Eric, actor. Ron ass. <laughs> <laughs> Just in this episode in particular, I can't speak for the whole series. I mean, Eric doesn't end up looking so great at the end of this either, but to like placate your partner and then expect them to like compartmentalize what they're so clearly passionate about is so weird. Like, did you want him to get the part and not care? Right. It? You paid for him to do this. <laughs> you had to have known he was going to throw himself into it. Like, you know his dreams. You also know just, like, the responsibilities of being a lead actor in a play. Like, I've, it, it feels like it speaks to some deeper resentments that these two as a couple have. And I doubt there's, like, a good enough couples counselor in Sicily to deal with this. Um, but it's <laughs> Actually, definitely pretty toxic. Sorry, I wanted to say... Was it, what episode was it, Charles? It was recently, but Maggie is kind of the, as role as the, as, as her, part of her duties as the mayor, she is also couples counselor. Wow. That was like of course. A, oh, that yeah. was the thing recently. She it's like in their it. charter or something. <laughs> yeah. I love that. But yeah, you expect him not to take it seriously. Have you seen the man's bonsai tree? Yeah. <laughs> He's dedicated. He also was like, yeah. hold on, I need the icing on these cookies to harden before we eat them. This man does everything full bussy. Mm -hmm. Full bussy stop. Mm -hmm. Full bussy stop. <laughs> we get to the next scene with Michelle, who is tirelessly working on the play. It's deep at night and Phil comes to pay her a visit. This is the first time. That Phil was appearing on the screen and there's still a tension between them. Uh, Michelle thinks that Phil is patronizing her. He thinks that he looks down on theater. He thinks it's an antiquated art form. Uh, it has no place in this world. And he's just trying to be polite to her, nice to her so that she can accept him back. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But the big thing that happens is that Chris comes in and he is saying that he is quitting because he cannot do the role anymore. And one little thing that I want to add is that I actually, I, I like how we shoot them with the door in the background, like it, the doors between Phil and Michelle. Mm -hmm. And then when Chris steps in through that door, he enters in the middle. And then once he's in the frame, the camera does like a little dolly motion mm -hmm. to then shoot them in profile. And now uh, Phil is in the middle because now mm. he is the one interjecting between Michelle and Chris. He's kind of given his little remarks. I thought I was like, oh, that's like, that's such a, it's so simple. It's mm -hmm. such a simple camera maneuver, but I think it's so neat to see it in action and actually play off. And also shows that like, as soon as something involving the play enters the relationship conversation with her and Phil, she's going to put the play first mm -hmm. ahead of him. She's like, I'm not ready to deal with you yet. Mm -hmm. Like me and Chris, what we have to do is more important. And she basically <laughs> um, dismisses Phil at that moment. You better mm -hmm. dismiss that man. This is the first time I've ever seen him and he can get the f*** out of here. And, and this is, you know how you said, Lee, at the, at the top of the episode, mm -hmm. I hate actors. I hate doctors. Oh. <laughs> and uh, you can edit this out, Lee, if I'm going to offend Sorry. a whole demographic of your listenership. But like every single like actual doctor that I've met cannot understand like anything that you care about or think is important because they're like well i'm busy saving lives so i've never seen friends or whatever and you're like okay good for you man like uh, you think they enjoy the theater no way 
Honestly, Michelle could have been doing anything. She could have been entering a baking competition. Mm-hmm. She could have been starting a pet grooming business. And he still would have come to her with the same tone, with these same de- – like, he just is kind of wanting to smooth the conflict over so that he can sleep better at night. I know. Literally. Yeah. So selfish that, like, yeah. she's asked for space and he was like, but I can't sleep. So get over it and your stupid play is dumb. Giving mm-hmm. someone space is the easiest thing you can do. And if you can't do it, you look, it's so embarrassing for you that you can't give someone space. Phil, chill. Unfortunately for Phil, this is like just retreading what happened exactly in the last episode. Michelle was uh, part of the Sicily bowling team. And he was like not really respecting that Uh, position. She was really good at it too. She was like the best player on the team. Yeah, I believe that. She doesn't do, she doesn't half-ass anything. And we were, I mean, we, Charles, I would... I would say that I like Phil in this season, but last episode and this episode is like, I mean, Charles, you were saying it yourself, it's like very shocking to see Phil act in this way. It's like really, I don't know, just like not normal for this show, as you've already said. Mm. Right. So when Phil is introduced, Phil and Michelle, when they come into town in Sicily, we like them. And this is not like their first few, like their first year being married or anything like that. They've been married for a like a number of years at this point, they faced a lot of conflicts before and they came into town and faced a lot of conflicts and they always handled it very well. Hmm. It, it's hmm. not like they brushed it away. It's more that they came together, realized how to see it together as a, a couple, a team, and then they got through it. And then suddenly last episode, they introduced something extremely ugly and petty. We we talked about it before on the last episode, but there is like a moment where they get into an argument and Michelle leaves the house. She grabs the car keys and she goes into the car and drives away. And ordinarily, in a northern exposure way, in my opinion, you would just cut right when she leaves the door. Mm-hmm. And we as an audience member wouldn't understand, okay, she left. Mm-hmm. In that episode, we see Phil actually follow her outside the door, still screaming, saying like, <gasps> don't get in the car, Michelle. Don't do this. You don't get in there. And he gets into the car and starts like hitting the car as if to get her out. And then she just peels off. (laughs) And it's so weird. That's some serious. Yeah. I'm like, what is happening here? And a little dark. Yeah. yeah. Right. And go on, go on. I'm just thinking like she's followed her husband to the middle of nowhere to support his career and what he has to do and here she is trying to find her own identity in a new place and instead of like encouraging her and letting her figure it out he's just like clawing at her and and probably putting a lot of off-screen expectations on her to Mm -hmm. do and act a certain way to support him and not giving her a modicum of support and it's just like Dude, if she wants space, just let her join bowling. Let her figure out if she wants to pursue this theater thing or or whatever else is going to come up in future episodes. But it's like she has no support, no family, no friends there. She's like trying to make a new life for herself, like, and he's not letting her do it. I I just, I don't think it's a very good husbandly thing to do. Doctors, man. (laughs) You know how I feel about it. It's just such a shame for, because I I like the character. And if anything... I don't want to like point names. I'm just saying that like, I almost think it's the writer's fault. Mm-hmm. It's like they're making I mean, it be this way because yeah. this does not fit in with his character. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can yell at Phil and he justifiably deserves it. But then we have to look at the person that's like pulling the rod of it all. The person <laughs> pulling the string and be like, all right, that's the, that's the root of the problem. <laughs> Especially the repetitive nature of the conflict. Yeah. Just like retreading that again in this episode of what was happening with the bowling. Uh, but there is something else that I think is really interesting in this scene. 
um, before Chris, you know, he's saying he wants to quit the play and stuff. His whole, there's something that I didn't write down the line, but basically when Chris Bo, you know, the character of Bo is supposed to kiss Cherie, she says something like, uh, this time when you kiss me, like, can you do it for real? Like, you know, mm. really shouldn't it be different this time? Shouldn't it be different? When you kiss someone for serious yeah. the first time. Something it's like scary, that. It's yeah. scary, isn't it? Or something. Yeah, like so uh-huh. the character of Bo is himself kind of getting frightened about this idea of like really kissing someone mm. like for real. And Chris in this scene is sort of also realizing that he's never maybe never, at least for this episode, like in the canon of this episode, he's never approached love in that way of thinking about it in a serious uh, almost kind of scary way in in that idea of what Bo is saying. Mm-hmm. But um, let's see, I wrote down the lines here. Chris says, it's that stuff, you know, scary, serious, just, I can't relate. It's that stuff, you know, scary, serious, uh, just, I can't relate. It doesn't, doesn't feel right. I, uh, it isn't me. Well, it, it isn't you, Chris. It, it, it's Bo. Yeah, but I'm the one doing it. He's got a point. He's an actor, Phil. He's playing a part. Those are the character's feelings. They don't have to be his. I don't know. Again, it's kind of like goes back to Hauling's sort of mm-hmm. method and how do we separate, you know, who we are and what the character is? How do we become the character? I think there's a maybe it'll, maybe it'll come out. I'm just trying to formulate my thoughts here. Maybe it'll come out as we get through the rest of the plot. But I think there's a really interesting space that they're, or an interesting idea that they're treading around of, you know, reality, your identity, and then like trying to pretend to be something else. Mm. All right. That brings us to the next scene where the play is growing and growing. We're getting a lot of machinations being done. The trap door by Hayden's being installed. We're seeing lines being rehearsed. And Michelle is actually called to the backstage by the stage manager. Uh, Marilyn, and she is trying to have her go through the props, make sure that everything is okay. And that's when she realizes that, hey, they actually put on a play before. It was a musical, Oklahoma. Yeah, but mm-hmm. something went horribly wrong with it. Marilyn's very cryptic. <laughs> and I think her answer to Michelle's question of why didn't it get played is that she was still in high school, uh, which I, I still don't really fully yeah, understand. She, de- she kind of deflects about it because we never, we in this scene, we don't understand. Like Michelle's really curious, like, oh, like Oklahoma, like what happened? You never put it on. And Mich- uh, Marilyn doesn't really want to talk about it. She deflects some some story about how she's like, oh, I don't, I don't know the full details because I wasn't, I was like still in high school at the time. I wasn't part oh, of it. Like, I think that's okay. What, but still, yeah, it's very cryptic as you were saying. And in the next scene, Eric is, you know, Surrounded by some other friends in the production. I actually can't remember who's there, but... It's like Maggie, Hayden, and the one with the long hair. The Ed. guy with the long... Ed, yeah. Ed, yeah. Um, what is... Does Ed... Do you know? Do you guys know? Was Ed doing anything for the... Like, what is his role in this He play? had a role. Maybe like he a was deputy? The, yeah, or mm-hmm. someone was the deputy with... There we go. Yeah. yeah, he's got a role. But in this scene, again, we get more talk about, like, method. And Eric uh, was, he was Othello his sophomore year. I don't know if that was college or high school or something. Um, But he played Othello and he had issues in the scene where he's supposed to strangle Desdemona (laughs) and his um, teacher or professor or whatever, um, the director 
was like, you have to use some sort of emotional substitution. Like, you know, you have to, uh, you have to really be real in that moment. And he's like, how am I supposed to strangle Desdemona if I've never murdered someone before? Like, how do you substitute for that? Um, I would love it if the director was like, go murder someone. (laughs) (laughs) Practice your craft. Why don't you? Yeah. Uh, again, in the scene, we see Ron is uh, comes up and he's kind of upset that Eric is now so involved in this play that Eric has no time for, well, like, what, feeding the birds or watering the plants and stuff. Again, just to echo what Sam is saying, like, what this makes, like, why would you buy him the role and then expect him not to be involved in the play or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's kind of a funny line. It kind of flew over my head for a second, but... They named a sandwich after Eric. We Thank you for bringing that up. At the bridge. Yes, so I was going to bring that Because it looks just like a normal club sandwich. <laughs> it's just like obviously <laughs> a sandwich that like has mustard on it when he usually doesn't or yeah. something. Um, so they're like, what is this sandwich that Eric Hillman and um, someone says, it's ham on rye. And then everyone laughs. Oh my God. Is that, I guess, just the pun of like, he's a ham and he's drunk on rye or something? Is that? Oh. <laughs> I have no clue. I thought they were laughing. Just like an inside joke. Yeah. That's also probably it. Wait, is this not in the Northern Over the Northern Exposure Kickbook? Unfortunately, it's not. The book was written oh, before. On. It was written oh, in like fourth season or fifth season, maybe. Uh, but yeah, that'd be so easy to put into the uh, into the cookbook. It's just ham on rye. And I think they're trying to like set a more comedic tone in the like conflict between Ron and Eric that, oh, maybe like Eric's not so great and mm-hmm. it justifies why Ron would be upset. But I know that like Eric doesn't come across too grounded mm-hmm. from this point of the episode going forward, but it doesn't it doesn't mean it's okay to, I don't know, to make him feel so crappy. <laughs> He's so happy. Like, and Ron says at some point, Something to the extent like he bought the part to mm-hmm. give Ron a um sorry to give Eric a boost like a confidence boost. Uh, mm-hmm. He has that confidence boost now, and it's just making Ron more upset and like petty. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what? What is so bad about seeing your partner for like two weeks be happy because he has something to live for, something mm-hmm. to do that isn't just like feed the birds? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Get over yourself, Ron. Really quickly, I wanted to bring up the. On the subject of named sandwiches, uh, I was listening to Strike Force Five. It, it was that one where the um, all the talk show hosts, you know, like Jimmy Fallon, uh, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, they came on uh, to do a podcast together so they could support the writers. And they were talking about Ben and Jerry flavors because mm, some of them yeah. had their own Ben That's and Jerry right. flavors. Oh, Jimmy Fallon's got one. Uh-huh. The Tonight Show. Actually, Do-o, sorry, Colbert. Before we go any further. What's up? When uh, Jimmy Fallon had Late Night, he actually had another flavor before the Tonight Dough. Oh. And it, it was, was so like, much better. It was so much better. It was like Damn. potato chips covered in chocolate and the ice cream. Oh, my God. Oh, that salty sounds so good. pretzels involved, too. Pretzels. Maybe it was, like a salty, it was like a salty chocolatey vanilla ice cream thing. Tonight Dough is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know. I don't, I don't agree with the Tonight Dough. <laughs> okay. It is I don't not agree with alley. it. I, I am so mad at that one. And uh, I like Stephen Colbert's Dough, The American Dream. And yeah, his America, is pretty good. Americone Dream yeah. is pretty good. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kimmel, he, he told, he said like, uh, yeah, I know that you two have ice cream flavors. I actually asked Ben and Jerry. They came <gasps> on my show. And wow. I was like, can, can I have one? And they said no. They <laughs> said no? I love Why? That. That's so funny. What was the reason? <laughs> I guess he just wasn't famous enough. Or oh. <laughs> he doesn't really elicit ice cream when I think of him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. Wow. Um, I thought that was hilarious right there. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're getting into some some good meat of this episode. Uh, quickly, just to run down the next scene, Michelle bumps into Maurice and Ruthann at the store, and she's just confused about like what happened with Oklahoma, and no one really talks about it. So we'll get into that a little bit later, but at the end of the scene, still a mystery. Um, next, uh, it's the scene when Ron tells Eric that he bought him the part. This <sighs> is the big, yeah, like Ron is waiting up uh, in a recliner, like the lamp on, reading a book. He's just like waiting for Eric to get back home. And Eric comes in, obviously like later than Ron would expect him, I guess. Eric is wired. He's really rejuvenated by this role and he's like he's like, I think I'm like maybe I should really pursue this part of my past something that you were talking about Charles where it's like this is my second chance at something that I thought I might have failed at and maybe this is my way to prove to myself that my dreams back then were like real and it's something that I can attain Aww. and then yeah and then Ron just has to tell him that that he bought the part why would he do that? That's so emotionally manipulative. I'm seeing the parallels between their relationship and Michelle and Phil's relationship where you can go off and you can have your little hobbies, but as soon as I'm feeling lonely, come back and stop giving a shit about them. Yeah. Like Ron doesn't even for a second let him finish his sentence or like finish the fantasy that he's having about no. going somewhere and fulfilling his dream before he's like, you're not leaving. Like, I bought you that role and you're not good enough to go to Seattle. And Oh, my God. I'm paraphrasing here. That's just the sentiment that if, uh, you know, it yeah. feels like. No, yeah. Well, uh, did you guys catch what book he was reading? Yeah. What was it? I, did I not He is reading down? American Caesar, Douglas MacArthur, 1880 to 1964. And it's a 1978 biography of the Army General, Douglas MacArthur. But it's also, it's an analog of Julius Caesar. So ah. you kind of get like, yeah, you kind of get like that little Etu Caesar type of thing right here. Uh, yeah, Etu Brute. The, like he the was stabbed betrayal. in the back. Oh, yeah, Etu Brute. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. As a gay, we are so dramatic. <laughs> oh, my God. He's like, who's going to feed the canaries? <laughs> oh, my God. Like they're going to starve. It's Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, all right. So after this, Eric is just completely like, you know, the wind knocked out of him. And he... We'll go up to Michelle's room. Um, she's staying at the brick, above the brick in the room up there. He goes to her late at night and he asks her, was it the money? And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier where she was, she's like, no, it wasn't the money, but maybe it was the money. You know, it did give you a little bit of a leg up, but basically I was kind of relieved at the end of the day when you were actually really good that like I could still accept the money and still have a great, uh, a great uh, sheriff, but I don't know how you would handle this situation, you know, as a director, but that is the role of the director is sort of working with the actors, getting them into a space where they're comfortable, you know, and she's just saying all the wrong things. She's yeah. doing a bad job. If you guys have seen 30 Rock, a character of Liz mm -hmm. Lemon is very good <laughs> at like coddling her actors. And then eventually she gets chosen to do a television program and she just crumbles. Like she, she can't look at herself in the mirror. She has to get her teeth whitened and like, you know, she just becomes a difficult <laughs> diva just like everyone else. And it takes a certain kind of like fiber of being to be able to be perceived the way that actors are perceived. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And nobody in this town can f- hack it. Yeah. They cannot handle it. They aren't able to discern character from reality, from self. Mm-hmm. Their like petty jealousies and their existential crises are just coming to play. It's it's a lot for just like a Midwest play. I'm like the jukebox is painted onto the wall, my friends. This is not your real life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was the phrase? I've seen that 30 Rock episode, uh, Sam. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Uh-huh. What was her... The reason she got propelled into fame is because she had like a catchphrase. Oh, she wrote. Um, what was it? Uh, it's a deal breaker. She oh, had it's the a deal, deal breaker. breaker oh, somebody yes. bring me some ham. <laughs> somebody. <laughs> what? That is I need it. to watch that. <laughs> oh, it's great. Is that when like all the men get mad at her because she's telling... Yes, women that like they need to break up with their dudes because it's a deal breaker. (laughs) She writes the deal breaker book and then gets the talk show, and she cannot stand being on camera. There is uh, God, really quickly. I'm I'm just gonna say this very quickly. Uh, The there's like a cold open of that episode where she's walking down Manhattan and she Mm -hmm. passes a bookstore and Mm -hmm. her book's there and somebody's arranging the books over there and she's (laughs) pointing at it and she's saying like I wrote that. That's me. And then the guy looks at her and he goes, he just rips out her, like, her, her um, uh, her what do you book. call that? The, yeah, her book and, like, the figure that she has. Yeah, it's like a, There's, like, a photo of her. Oh, he, like, yes. opens the book to a page that says, like, if your man is still wearing a name tag, that's a yes, deal breaker yes, as yes. he's, like, wearing a name tag. <laughs> yes. And he rips it out and he just like, slaps her ripped off head into the window. He goes, like, another successful interaction with a man. <laughs> So I can't recommend uh, that episode enough. It's one of my favorites. That's good. Amazing. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No. Uh, getting back into Northern yeah. Pleasure. So after that, so we had the downfall of Eric. Now we're getting to the downfall of Michelle because the play is crumbling all around. Nobody can do anything. So we're having Hauling lose his faith in his ability to deliver lines. He's getting into it with everybody else. Uh, Chris is also finding that he cannot deliver his lines because he's finding this duality between the character of Bo and himself involving himself with Maggie. And then we see that Shelly and Maggie are getting into it because Shelly thinks that she deserves the role. I mean, she's blonde. The character description says blonde. Somehow they can't put a wig on Maggie. That's beyond their means. <laughs> they put a wanna... wig on her. It's just a brunette wig. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone storms out and Michelle is left trying to hold together the play. Yeah, it's all falling apart. And I guess later that day, later that night, Michelle runs to Maurice's house in despair. And he's like inviting her in. He's like, I've got some tea. Like, maybe you should sit down. She says, what did I do, Maurice? What happened to Oklahoma? You have to tell me what it is. And there's a pretty awesome soundbite. We've kind of referenced earlier the idea that theater is like a virus. (laughs) I'll play that here. uh, What Maurice tells Michelle here. The... Theater is like a virus. It changes people. It uh, it alters them. In a place like Sicily, where you've got so many independent spirits, it's even worse, more virulent. Petty jealousies, creative differences, all kinds of little spats. And finally, there's a suspicious fire in the barn of the leading man. God. You see, Michelle, people come up here to reinvent themselves, to 
rewrite the book, so to speak. They're not the kind of people who easily take direction. Charles, just to get back to how you were alluding earlier in this episode, when you asked me what I thought about actors, and I said they're crazy. Yeah, I love that this quote also brings in when Maurice says, people come here to Sicily to reinvent themselves. And we've talked about that, Charles, a number of times throughout the episodes of Northern Exposure. It's brought up a few times. I love that idea of each of these characters being something of like created in their own image. You know, it's like who they want to be out here as themselves. And yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting to look at that aspect of all these characters and how it could be a dark twist of Mm. like how all these jealousies and how creative differences. I'm just reading from the quote that he just said, but I like how they sort of play that angle of how these very strong personalities What would happen if you tried to cast them all in a play? And to play devil's advocate on that point, Lee, like, I guess I'm seeing like the negative lashback of this exact idea that like all these very independent spirits came to Sicily on purpose um, with an intention of, you know, rewriting their story. And what happens, though, whenever you like, like Eric, remove yourself from like perhaps a painful past or a painful failure and put yourself in an isolated environment with with less people around is that I think this town like so uh, like, or at least in this episode, it seems that like this is forcing the town's people to come and be directly uh, confronted with conflict that like kind of rubs against their insecurities or their fears or their crushed dreams. And a lot of them, mostly the three men here that end up drinking uh, all the whiskey or whatever the the next scene, like haven't, matured since they arrived past the point of the conflict uh, requires from them because also all these three dudes like Michelle the director ends up having to kind of like lead them by the hand to the point of growth whereas the conflict with Shelly and Maggie though it is you know in the grand scheme of conflict in this story a lot less because it's just like kind of this petty jealousy about image um, they're able to resolve it on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just mm. think it's interesting that, yeah, you have all these independent people, but they've also chosen to kind of potentially run away from the things that yeah. have not worked out for them back wherever the heck they're from, Seattle or whatever. And mm-hmm. now they're forced to confront those things and how they choose to act is really telling. That's great. I like that too. It's like, what are they, also what are they running away from? Not what they're like shaping themselves as, but what are they hiding from as well? Right. I I wanted to say, I know this is like kind of a cardinal sin to like advocate for this position, but uh, this is kind of why you need that person in the suit who doesn't, he doesn't know what method acting is. He doesn't care what method (laughs) acting is. He just wants to get the product finished. Like you need like that Rick Ludwin, Warren Littlefield, Jeff Ross, like that executive who comes in and he's like, no, you're not coming into the scene, like hanging on the chandelier. Like get down mm-hmm. from there. We're not putting <laughs> Macbeth in space. Like, no, no, that's a silly idea. Mm-hmm. No, we're going to get this done. I don't care. Just <laughs> make sure that everything is, you know, operations are running smoothly so that we can be ready by opening night. So you can like wrangle a bunch mm-hmm. of like very independent spirited individuals that have all these creativity that's bursting from the seams and you have someone that's like you know that can oversee it and be like all right let's just let's just calm down take a breather everyone just come on we don't we don't have to have all of this stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> takes a lot of uh different personalities different types to 
Like it's just when you find that perfect combination, then you got lightning in a bottle, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So Lizzie was kind of alluding to it, but the next scene is in Hollings Still, which we've seen a couple times in the series, not very often, but sometimes these characters get in such a state of despair that they go (laughs) uh, distill like potato vodka or something or moonshine. And uh, they're just getting like way too drunk. This scene is mostly just Chris still struggling with this idea of uh, like real love, I guess. Maybe we're to understand that he's never really experienced, you know, he has some line about like looking the person you love in the eye, you know, and that's what he has to do in this scene. Like he's never been confronted with that, apparently. Wow. Talk about a place I would rather never be. Jesus, I can smell this barn that they're in. (laughs) There's a a moment later when like... Eric has full-on puke on himself. Yeah, it's like, so that's sad. just puke on, on my legs. Uh, oh, my God. And Ew. they're all, like, playing tiny violins for each other. Yes. And then Hollings, like, I, you know, he does, like, a monologue or something. And, he says his line, yeah. And Eric is like, wow, you're a really bad actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, some so of that was pretty good. And they're like, are you kidding? That was terrible. Oh, that was <laughs> so mean. He was like, I thought we were all being vulnerable here. Yeah. Right. Savage. <laughs> but I honestly thought he did a good uh, reading of that line. Yeah. Even though they, uh, even though they were um, kind of critical of it. To me, I wrote down in that my notes, it's like he can finally apply the line to this mm. situation. So he's like understanding what it means now. And this is something that'll probably be more important later in the episode, but I just wanted to get it out so I don't forget it. But earlier in the episode, when Chris is first like trying to quit the play, he comes to Michelle at the brick really late at night and he's saying he's going to quit the play. Um, and he doesn't understand how to separate himself from the role Uh, Michelle says, you know, that's the craft of acting, forgetting yourself and becoming someone else. That's the craft, Chris, the the art of acting, forgetting yourself and becoming someone else. And I think that's not entirely true. I think it's a good thing maybe to say to Chris at the time, Mm. but something that I'm kind of circling around this idea of method acting is uh, not necessarily like separating yourself from the role but understanding the role and maybe putting some of yourself into the role or finding how you can connect to it in a way. And I think that's ultimately what Chris does in this episode, realizing like how he, I think, I guess we'll get to this later, but he ends up kissing Maggie because he believes in Bo and he wants Bo to reach that, um, that sort of maturity. And it's almost also himself that he's like putting himself in that situation. He wants, he doesn't realize it, but he himself can reach that same maturity. So it's not necessarily the whole idea of like separating yourself or being full method. It's a sort of middle ground between the two and like trying to inhabit this role while knowing the separation, but also finding the connection, the empathy that you can put with this character. Mm, that's so good. And I think that in order to build off of that, I think that there's an idea that Chris wants to believe that Bo can get that happy ending because if Bo can get that happy ending, he can get that happy ending. Right. Mm. So he can shape that play and turn it into a reality. There was something I was watching a, a few weeks ago that brought up a really interesting notion of how in The Sound of Music, we see Rolf the guy who betrays the family mm-hmm. to join the Nazis. We never really know his fate. 
he runs away in, into the night mm. and one of the character pontificates and thinks about this and says like i think that they did that on purpose the author did it on purpose because i want to believe in a world in which like his mistake doesn't shape him for the rest of his life he never killed anybody he didn't do any of that there's nothing that can't be undone so um, i want to say he can control it. <laughs> yeah he can control the narrative of his story so in the sound of music rolf can come back and they didn't explicitly write that or explicitly rule it out because they want you as the reader to put that into your own lives and so that's kind of happening with chris and Bo, where he sees the role Bo, and he says like if i don't make this come true then that means ultimately, like, I believe this idea is futile and it cannot come true. But if I can act it out, then I can turn this into a reality to which then I know it can be true. I love that spirit of forgiveness, that idea of like a second chance. But also, I think Sam has something to say here. <laughs> so much yes, to say. Yes. I love the sound of music. I think Rolf, <laughs> I think if he had spoiler for the sound of music we're spoiling friends and the sound of music um so rolf as the von traps are trying to escape the nazis of which rolf is he <laughs> finds them hiding in a nunnery and he sees them and i think i would be more inclined to forgive him if it was instinctual that he called attention to them when he found them hiding mm -hmm. but he found Le um lisel he sees lisel huddled in a corner with all of her siblings, he looks at her, considers it, and then blows the whistle. Yeah. And mm. I think he is responsible for a lot of deaths. <laughs> that and, is, okay, that is reasonably true. <laughs> <laughs> because if he's willing to blow the whiesel on Liesel, he did a whole musical number throwing her around a gazebo, <laughs> then I'm pretty sure that he's okay with killing other people. <laughs> and I do hope it haunts him, but he's probably so freaking indicted with so many other war crimes that it's probably like back of mind for him. Charles, actually, I'm curious, what was the piece of media that you watched? Uh, Skip and Loafer. It's one of my favorite things. Skip I love and it Loafer? so much. Yes, okay. Skip and Loafer. Oh, Skip and Loafer. Skip and Loafer. Is that a documentary or? No, it is actually a Japanese cartoon. <gasps> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I would love, I would love if I could pick that up. I also have the, I can nerd about sound music with you later. We can keep going. Ooh. Future Patreon episodes. Wait, wait, wait. I don't think I've I actually am pretty bonkers seen... about musicals. I don't, yeah. I think... <gasps> Noted. Okay. How do you feel about Rent? Just curious. <laughs> I um, I uh, <laughs> doesn't like it. Damn. Gotta get you. No, 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 I, we gotta get Rent I, on the 180 podcast, Alex Aaron's oh, podcast, oh, where you guys gosh. argue about your positions on Rent. I don't love Rent. Yeah. I need someone oh, who loves it to tell me oh, why I don't, I, I don't um, love it. I hate it. I, hate I just want to, I, I, I like just wonder, sorry, go ahead. If Jonathan Larson didn't pass away, would it have reached that critical acclaim? These are the kind of questions yeah. that you come to, to Northern overexposure <laughs> to for <laughs> answers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's uh okay i'm okay. gonna slam through the next couple of scenes right here because i think they're all uh, connected yeah. in one way in that this is where we're getting a bunch of disappointments in a row mm. so number one we already went through the scene between the three men trying to come to terms with themselves then we have the scene between ruthann and ron and again we see the errors of ron's thinking and ruthann is confronting him saying like this is mostly for yourself you're not yeah. even yes. thinking about eric and Ruth then we Ann follow through with that. Uh, it's the soothsayer herself. <laughs> and then we cut into the Capras, in which Michelle's problem is being, it's becoming worse with her neck. 
and Phil has to prescribe her uh, clonopin mm-hmm. in order to help her. And as they talk about it more, Michelle thinks that, well, Phil is actually enjoying this. It's not that he's trying to help her. He revels in her pain because now he can come in and swoop in and look like the good guy. So <laughs> we're getting a bunch of stuff. Three scenes packed together in which ultimately we're seeing the uh, the error of their ways. I do really quickly want to say something about that scene with Phil and Michelle reminded me of like, there's at least one, but maybe more scenes with Joel and Maggie that are like just like this, where hmm. Maggie like... One that I'm thinking of is probably in like season one or something. She like twists her knee dancing. It's like you should have, the line is like, you zigged when you should have zagged or something. <laughs> and uh, he's like trying to figure out if she broke it or if it's a sprain or what he needs to do. And she says like, you're like, oh, come on. Like she, I think she doesn't say like, you're enjoying this, but she like mm. excuses herself. Like she gets out of there. It's like, you're just having like too much fun with this. Like you're supposed to be a doctor. It's supposed to be serious. <laughs> um, so I can see the writers are maybe trying to follow in that sort of tread or following that outline. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's what I came to Phil and Michelle for, you know, that's not what I want Mm. from them. I want something different. Mm -hmm. They were never trying to really be, Phil was never trying to really be Joel. He's very different. So I don't know, but, uh, I can see that kind of, uh, similarities between those scenes. Oh, it's funny. I wrote this down. He says, it's not making me happy. It's making me sleepy. I, oh, just, I don't know. Oh he's just God. like, he's can't so sleep. He's so self-centered. <laughs> God, this is exhausting. That's what it is, I guess. It's the self, self-centered nature. It's just thinking about himself, like how he can't sleep. Well, fortunately, Ed does come in and reveals the news that Maggie is rewriting the play. She realizes that, hey, maybe something's wrong with Chris. So Maggie, I need to... Mayor... Cinema owner, playwright, <laughs> like playwright. All therapist. Things. I mean, yeah. she's a pilot too. Pilot, yeah. I'm Firefighter. Land, air, sea. What could she not conquer? <laughs> I must say, this is the part of the episode where I had to get on my little soapbox and use my theater degree. It is so incredibly illegal to rewrite a play that you have license to <laughs> to perform. This is so crazy. As soon as they pulled out that script, I was like, illegal, illegal, shut it down, shut it down. I think it's funny later, Michelle's like explaining to Chris, it's like, oh, now you don't have to kiss Maggie anymore. She like rewrote the play and she's like, I know that's kind of f***ed up, you know, like <laughs> she's like, but she kind of like quickly brushes over. It's like, maybe this is unethical, but we're, you know, it's going to fix all our problems. She's like, the WGA so will funny. never find out. Exactly. We're in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> That That is so funny, Sam. <laughs> Super illegal. Well, that is the reason why she comes and visits the three inebriated men who, <laughs> as we talked about earlier, they've taken to just puking on their on their jeans. Oh, my God. It's an God. acceptable behavior now. Deal breaker. <laughs> and she comes in with Ron and they apologize and they say like, hey, you know, like, okay, I realized what I did was messed up. I'm so sorry about it. Now I support you. Uh, and then they go through all the people individually, basically. Because after they're done with Ron and Eric, Michelle talks to Chris and says, like, well, now look at the play. Then let's try to solve your problem. And then once they try to go through that, they go to Hauling. And I think Hauling has the least amount of fixing to do. He just says, like, yeah, I'm good. Like He's, he's hung <laughs> over. He's hung over, but he at least he still remembers the line. So He is in a healthy goddamn relationship. <laughs> and he's like, my wife wants me to do this. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. Happen. Wait, remind me, doesn't anyone remember what 
like basically what Ron says. Can I remember listening to what he says in that scene and being like, uh, mm-hmm. not good enough. I don't, but I don't I remember exactly what the tone of it was. Like they resolved it too quickly. Like that's yeah. multiple conversations I feel like would have to <laughs> yeah, take place. Yeah, needs a little more scene. Also, you- Eric is drunk. <laughs> I feel like you're not resolving covered anything when skin. someone is that fucking drunk. Yeah, covered in vom. <laughs> anyway, just curious, but. Did you remember Charles or no? I, I just rewatched it very quickly. It's not. If anything, Michelle kind of fixes it, and it's okay. not done in a very well, great way. Because she's like, "You signed uh, like oh, a yeah, unwritten, unwritten contract. contract. The show must go on." Yeah, I remember that. I do remember right. wishing that Chris had come to the beat of accepting the role organically, rather than having someone kind of fix it, and then him out of nowhere inexplicably yeah. being like, "I have to do justice to this character." Yeah, right. Yeah. It just it it all it was all too quick. It's interesting, yeah, because. Chris is often the one who asks a lot of questions and does a lot of soul searching. And it's only like, uh, you know, he gets drunk and then, yeah, someone has to present him with the alternative, which he sees is not right. And like, yeah, he doesn't come to it himself. He sees like the wrong answer and it's like, okay, then the opposite must be true. He says, uh, we can't send Bo back to the ranch. The, the new ending is like the characters don't kiss. Um, Bo goes back, works on the ranch and Cherie like hops the bus and goes to another town and has a very successful life afterwards. And it's something like, uh, Michelle says it's, oh, it's very nineties or no, does she say it's very nineties? Yeah, it's a nineties modern mm-hmm. yeah. version. <laughs> it's very nice. It's so Interesting. funny. Um, and then yeah, Chris reacts with, no, like we can't, we can't let that happen. Like Bo would never never find a meaningful personal loving relationship i can't let that happen to Bo. he's gonna kiss her he's gotta kiss her right i liked maggie's ending better <laughs> as do i <laughs> i have to read the play but i would yeah it's like just seeing it i was like yeah maggie's ending sounds interesting more interesting but i wonder what the play's like i think that's also echoing all the points we've made we're like yeah. why are they putting maggie with with chris out of nowhere even though they're not right for each other well, uh, we continue and we see that preparations are all in order with the play. Everything's coming back together, except Michelle is really zonked out, like taking too many clonopin. There's a, um, oh, it's in the last scene where she's like, uh, she finally convinces the men in the still and she turns around quickly to take another pill from the clonopin bottle. <laughs> Phil had said like, you're only supposed to take a half every mm-hmm. so often. She's trying to break the pill in half. She can't do it. So she's like, Pops whatever. Oh, <laughs> and then like in the next scene, she's just really zonked out. She ends up like, bumping your head on Hayden's like really short door and like is like, oh, like a little bit of pain. I hit my head. Let me take a whole clonopin. Oh, my God. She keeps keeps taking more and more clonopin and, uh, oh, nearly gets killed by a falling (laughs) stage light that she doesn't notice. She completely doesn't notice, but the stage hands or the grips or I don't know what you would call them there, the lighting technicians. It's Hayden. Yeah. Yeah, All Hayden. (laughs) It's fucking Hayden. (laughs) Yeah. And she falls through the trap door. Yeah, that Hayden, you guys were talking about earlier, Hayden (laughs) made that trap door. She ends up falling through it and like her arms in a cast. Okay, what is the metaphor for the trap door? There has to be one. Charles, help me. Yeah, so I think that there is a metaphor there. I don't think it's done very well, though. So basically what's happened, I'm setting up the scene very quickly, is that this is during the daytime when they're prepping and she's zonked out of the, uh, uh, the zooted out of her gourd. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we we then fast forwarded to night where she's alone with Eric and they're talking about the theater and how strange and nervous and jittery they are. 
the night before the play opens. And Eric goes into this beautiful monologue about how the the people come into the theater to be changed. And the actors, they're the conduit for that. They are the ones that can change your lives based on their actions. There's something magical that happens in the theater. And I think it's such a great, like he's doing a fantastic job, both mm-hmm. narratively and just the actor himself. He's doing, I... a, he's killing it. Go ahead, Sam. Go on, Sam. No, Lizzie's telling me I shouldn't. No, skip it. What? I hated this monologue. (laughs) I hated it as a theater kid and like apparently a theater major. Thank you, Lizzie, for telling me that. Oh, my God. The way these actors like. It's is a it doctor ha- is thing. Is it ham on rye? Is it too hammy? It's, oh, you exactly. it's too it's important. Just, it's just ham on rye. This is a creation. This is like bus stop, my dude. And what bothers me is that he's monologuing to his director. Yes. Like, yeah. she doesn't know this. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I also, guess it's for us, the audience, but, like, I could not remove myself from the situation. That is true. Also, she is absolutely on planet Mars right now. <laughs> like, she's like, wow, so good. You're yeah. so right. And I'm like, she's out of her mind. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was meant comedically, like, Eric's, like, yeah. talking off his ass, uh, getting yeah. all philosophical a little bit. I think it's a. I think it's a little bit of both. If you're like a, if you want, if you're like a sucker and want to feel that, you're like, oh yeah, Eric, you're so great, and you're like on Michelle's side here, you're a little zooted, you know, you're like really <laughs> feeling that scene. And then also like if you're, you can kind of sitting back and be like, oh god, Eric's so full of himself, you can laugh at it, you yeah, know, have fun yeah. with it. I definitely enjoyed it, but I wasn't like. Ah. <laughs> The spirit, the spirit of the theater. <laughs> yeah, right. But I took that. I took that bait. No, no well, <laughs> I, do hear, bait. <laughs> I do want to hear Charles, because um, I, I think you were kind of ramping up to a point yeah. about the trap door. I want to hear about that. Oh yeah. So once Eric goes into this monologue, and I thought that its purpose was to like it was supposed to instill something into Michelle, but then Michelle steps over and she falls through the trap door, mm. and in essence. She can't keep going the way that she has been going. She has been overly mm-hmm. stressed. It's gotten to the point where she's overdosing on drugs. Yep. And this is the exact tipping point, metaphorically done through a trap door, where she literally falls back down to earth. She goes oh. down and she goes through there. And this is where it kind of annoys me, though, is that the way it's resolved is that as we get the final scene and they're doing the play and everyone's having a great time, we get a short shot of Michelle. And Phil kind of like leaning on each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think what they're trying to say is that like you need the support of your loved ones in order to get you through. That Mm. may be true. In fact, you know, that's a pretty good lesson to learn. But was that demonstrated in this episode? Not really. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. where it loses me. And that's when it almost seems as though if that's what they were going for, what really is the takeaway is that like she needed to be humbled almost, mm-hmm. which is just, yeah. it doesn't leave the same taste in your mouth. Yeah. It felt like a codependency, like kind of yeah. hinting at a codependency yeah. in their relationship that like, okay, now that she's hit rock bottom, she can finally go to him and he can like sink his claws back into her kind of thing. That's when he feels comfortable around her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. He's like, oh, good. She's back. It's like, well, yeah, she's also like <laughs> at, at 0% right now. Uh, I kind of wish it was Eric who had fallen through the trap door. <laughs> I feel like oh, he needed a change of. That would have been good. Or like, you know, he's reached another high. I feel like he needed to be challenged by a low. So we can see him either choose to pick himself back up or maybe just stay low. Yeah. The reason that I enjoyed Eric's monologue right here is because I thought it was going to play into Michelle in Mm. that when she fell through the trap door, she was going to pick herself up through her own 
like her her own agency and maybe in some way she would use eric's word and believe like oh okay like i see what's happening here i'm putting way too much stress on themselves in the spirit of the theater you kind of have to realize that it's not all about you like there's an audience to consider mm-hmm. it's a, you know it's an art form and use that as the driving force to pick yourself up from the depths of uh, blackness mm-hmm. and then get yourself back on the stage and I thought that's where they were going with and I was mm-hmm. like oh this is fantastic about to use Eric's monologue into there and then it, <laughs> yeah no. yeah it just ended up with them like crashed on each other uh, Phil and Michelle also sorry one last thing for some reason this like really stuck with me in the episode but like once she's fallen through the trapdoor, we kind of get this shot like looking up I guess from her POV up at Eric like back into the light of the trapdoor, and you never hear a peep from her, like saying, like, I'm okay, or oh my God, you know, nothing. It's just silence. And then she never speaks again for the rest yeah, of the episode, true. I don't think. And it was just kind of a weird taste in my mouth that like she's there and she doesn't even get to see the fruits of her labor mm-hmm. as or enjoy them as much, you know, because at this point she's exhausted and on drugs um, and possibly has a broken leg. I don't know. Um, but th- that just really bothered me that we didn't hear a peep from her once she fell through the trap door. Yeah, like what was the resolution for Michelle in yeah, the yeah. end? Yeah, just yeah. that. Oh, they're made for each other. Phil and Michelle, they are sleeping next to each other. It's perfect. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I don't I don't <laughs> like that necessarily. But yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a magical closing scene here with the townsfolk watching the play as it's being performed. There's an interesting sort of reverb that they put on this whole yeah. scene to make it feel like we're in like this big auditorium, like like echoey hall, you know, like a stage. And it's um it's interesting, yeah, because it like puts us, it, it makes us feel like we're not in the moment with the characters like experiencing it alongside Chris, but that we're watching a play, mm-hmm. you know, like we're on the outside, we're the observers watching um, this piece. And I was thinking like, it might've been an interesting choice when Bo has to kiss Cherie, you know, when Chris has to kiss Maggie, if like, what if they went in and like, they cut the reverb out and we're like close to them and we're like, uh, we sound like we're close. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I wonder, they could have been a choice, but they they didn't take that choice and we kept it sort of all, like we, we didn't dive into a scene mm-hmm. of Chris, uh, you know, the tension of like, can he do it? Um, and I, I still kind of liked it, you know, because we see all the rest of the townsfolk. We see like, Marilyn, is that called like in the wings, like in the yeah. side of the stage? <laughs> yeah. Kind of smiling as she sees the play is going well. I think even Ruthann, who was a critic before, now has a comment like saying that Eric is like really good. Like he's doing yeah. it all really well. And Maurice comes in and it's like. He's watching from the back, yeah, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's admiring the play there. Hayden, actually I forgot to, I know I have a theater degree, but I forgot to ask <laughs> you guys if you knew what is the what is that job in theater? The person because Hayden does it a few times in this episode where like he just knows everyone's yeah. line. Do you guys know that? What uh, it's called? I think that's the assistant director who keeps okay. the book. So that if there you go, go like line for like blocking and stuff, they have it. They're like following along. Yeah. So they can read you the line if you or they can read the act of the line if they forget or something. Or they're mm-hmm. out of they don't know the order or something. So it's cool. Yeah. I mean, we saw Hayden doing that earlier and he's still we didn't really talk about it, but I think when I want to say it's when hauling, uh, he was absent. He didn't show up to rehearsal. Michelle was trying to get Hayden to take that role. And Hayden was like, no, I can't do it. I'll never like, I'm too nervous to hop on stage. Yeah. He leaves the building entirely. Yeah, he, like, no, <laughs> he runs away despite knowing all the lines, you, you yeah. know, he could have done it. And it's, it's cool to see 
that this is, you know, Hayden is loving this performance and like this is where he wants to be. Oh and like God. he doesn't need to be on stage. He's just like he's having so much fun just like reciting everyone's line. I love that. Holy shit. I'm starting to realize why I relate to that character. Was that? Because that was like me in the You just knew the, everyone's like, lines or something? Oh yeah, it's the video <laughs> lighting, whatever. Yeah. You knew every scene. You knew like how you should set the scene before the play even started. Like you probably knew, <laughs> more, I probably knew more lines than any character, including the main ones, because you know every cue. And you know their inflection when every character, they say it like, oh, that's the doorbell. You know, like you know yeah. how they're going to say it. Yeah, and everything. you hear the differences and you can like play like, oh, we're kind of late. So let me, you know, delay. And it's funny because like you're in your own world, but you're so involved in the action and in the chemistry of the characters and all they're doing but they just don't know you are because yeah. you're like in a little box in the back yeah. I'm just having like flashbacks to like how included I felt but also like you're kind of in your own world and the joy of that in Hayden's face I think is just really fun and I'm yeah I'm like holy I also <laughs> wanted to say that I'm really really glad that you y'all had this interpretation of Hayden and it makes a lot more sense than what I thought because when I watched this scene <laughs> I thought Hayden was delivering Eric's lines oh. like from behind the curtain. It was so and in was, sync that yeah. I think you could see it like that out of context. Oh, for I sure. was so disappointed because wow. I thought <laughs> wow. we're building this entire sad. episode to give him, yeah, to make him be like, oh, I can find my confidence to start my life over again. And the thesis, like the way it ends, mm. is that like, no, 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 no. We're just going to have a guy just dub your lines over. <laughs> You'll just be eating peanut butter and Hayden's going to be saying your lines. I thought that's how this episode ended. I was like, are you kidding me? Good. I'm wow. glad we can set the record straight. Yeah, that was so dark. shift in the meeting. <laughs> There's been some like... Some, very few, but some episodes of Northern Exposure that have kind of dark endings where it's like, whoa, like what? <laughs> like that's kind of, if you think about it, it's really sad. Um, anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, just to wrap us up here, uh, we after the play goes over to success, you know, Maggie is in her um, dressing room, I don't know, taking makeup off, you know, get, you know getting out of, um, you know character and stuff. And there's a nice little moment where Shelly and Maggie both congratulate each other after the show. And like you're saying, Lizzie, it's like, you know, they, they can come to, um, you know, they, they can put their differences aside and, you know, there's no, there's no hard feelings or anything. They're congratulating each other. They're happy for each other. Selfishly, I wish there was a woman in the moonshine still and mm. maybe Maggie and another male actor we're having issue because right now it looks like women can resolve everything within themselves and guys would just be like dukes of hazarding it out there without Michelle, you know? It's very that though. Uh, and then Chris uh, comes later after everyone else comes to congratulate Maggie. Chris comes kind of like has a solo scene with her after all that and he tells her it was a lot of fun and they kind of smile at each other. Um, I don't... Maybe my notes are a little thin for this scene, but I don't think they really say a whole lot, but a lot they try to communicate a lot with um subtextually, you might subtextually. say subtextually. <laughs> <clears throat> subtextually. Um yeah, in this scene, someone was just waiting for the other person to be like, so uh what a f yeah, like, basically. <laughs> I was like, can y'all just like decide if that's if we're going there or not? But they just kind of like skirted around it. And I was kind of annoyed for at Maggie. I was like, Maggie, you I feel like you're into him. Like mm -hmm. you're the f mayor and like you own this town. Like you can't just be like, hey, friend of 20 whatever years, like you want to f 
I don't know. Like, yeah, and she was showing initiative by like, okay, I'm going to rewrite the scene. Like, I understand Chris has this problem, you know, yeah. I'm going to make this. So it's like, it would make sense for her to uh, have a little initiative in that final scene if it's like, you know, maybe she goes and they kiss or whatever. She kisses him. But as kind of what Charles is saying in the last episode, what we were talking about in the last episode is like, we see a lot from Chris's perspective. Yeah. We don't really know how Maggie is taking this situation. Like, like what is her thought on on Chris? Is she enjoying this? Does she like him? I think we get a little bit more from her perspective in this episode, but it would have been nice and kind of like really completed that circle if maybe she took some action here in the scene instead of Chris or something. But no one yeah. really does anything. Yeah, it's like she keeps thrusting the ball in his court and he's obviously so like wigged out by the idea of a actual adult relationship <laughs> that he doesn't do anything and they don't really advance that plot point at all. I've been doing this thing. Well, like we did it last episode. I can't say that we've been doing this all over all <laughs> the seasons, but I've been doing this thing where we rewrite part of the scene to see <laughs> how it would be better. And this just occurred to me, like what if they actually did do Maggie's change where Bo doesn't actually try to kiss her mm. character. And they go through mm. this play and it's still a success and they're having a great time. And then in the dressing room, he does his goodbye and he leaves. So we get the shot of him leaving and then we get we return back to Maggie and she gives it more thought. She's mulling over her head. <laughs> so and then we see her leave through that door right there and she calls Chris back and say, hey, do you want to do that line again? But this time for real? <gasps> oh, my like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. And he gets back on the stage and then they do the oh. line and then like, boom. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my God. Alternatively, it would have been great if there wasn't a rewrite, but Bo was just miscast. And then Chris has to watch the play and watch somebody oh. else kiss oh. Maggie. That's also so good. That's good too. I've read a lot like of a fan fiction. Yeah, right. <laughs> and like while they're kissing on stage, you hear Michelle like knocking like, hey, somebody let me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bold choice that she like, they just forget about it. <laughs> Eric just doesn't so say bold. anything. Eric's like, oh, the play is much easier without Michelle. <laughs> Eric's like, oh, she was kind of a bitch for letting my Ron bribe her. <laughs> she deserves this. Well, Why didn't she just lie? Why didn't she just say like, no, it was your talent that won me over. The money had nothing to do with yeah, it. Yeah, I would have lied. Like, I didn't, She's got no. Why did she just say yeah. that? <laughs> Well, hey, that was Bus Stop. Thank you guys so much for joining us, Subtextual. Thank um, you for having us. For real. I'm really glad that we made this happen. Yeah, you guys have both been on the podcast before, but separately. Mm -hmm. And I've always like kind of dreamed that we could get together, all four of us, and have this chat. And uh, it's fun. What a great episode to discuss. I'm glad that we got to put our theater degree uh, <laughs> We all share one. <laughs> one <Yeah>. theater degree. <laughs> Here, you can hold it. Basically. Uh. <laughs> um but yeah, I guess once again, obviously the podcast subtextual, but do you guys have any like socials to plug? Anything you'd like to? Oh gosh, we're on uh, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, Twitter, Twitter at subtextual pod. You can listen to the podcast on any freaking platform you freaking want. We have almost a hundred episodes now. Let's go. So just scroll through, find a movie you love or hate and, you know, start there. Actually, no. Start with Happy Together yeah. because it's got Lee and Charles and it's one of my favorite episodes of all time, like not kidding you. Mm -hmm. uh, and then branch out and go with whatever genre direction you want. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. I actually enjoy so much any conversation we all get to have, especially on mic. 
So thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah, we were looking for an excuse to talk to, <laughs> talk to you guys. This is just perfect. So thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah, we got to do this again sometime soon. Well, Charles, the next episode is the 21st episode in season six. It's called Ursa Minor. And you haven't watched this one yet. So I'm going to ask you any predictions on what might happen. Uh, I'm going to guess that somebody picks up stargazing. Picks yeah. up stargazing as a habit. The they really get into it. And they learn more about Ursa Minor. Uh, I don't know anything about Ursa Minor. I was going to say, what do you know about Ursa Minor? <laughs> I don't. There's an Ursa Major, right? It's yeah, a little, little spoon. Right? Little spoon. It's the little bear, I think is what it means. Yeah, uh, okay. Little bear. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was making sure that I wasn't spreading misinformation. <laughs> um, no, that's good. But yeah, I think that it can go like that. And uh, yeah, again, uh, thank you, Lizzie and Sam, for coming on to the pod. Try not to plug your podcast better. <laughs> How do I make it sound <laughs> even better? Other than, other than just to say, like, just just listen to it. Like, just go on to your app. <laughs> what do you do with it? At the end of the day, that's literally all we can do. You just got to press play. You're going to love it. Please hit the, hit play on that podcast. Oh, my God. All right, Charles. I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Sam and Lizzie for being our guests. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.